What's up, podcast? The most common thing that I hear from players uh, when I'm talking to them about what they struggle with is their their inability to get out of their own head, their focus on score, their dwelling on past bad shots. Like all of those are are directly related and from the same thing. And on today's episode, I talked to uh, Scott Barnacle, who is a certified mental performance coach, uh, is a super smart guy, has his PhD, knows what he's talking about. Uh, and we talk about this exact thing of where you get your satisfaction, where you get your enjoyment from in golf or in whatever pursuit you have. And do you get it from external sources or internal sources? And why it's absolutely essential to your long-term improvement to get it from the right place. So listen to this episode. I think you get a lot of value out of it. I And there's also so much other stuff we talk about that can directly help you play better. Uh, I think it's awesome, an awesome conversation. He's an awesome guy, cool guy. Um, so yeah, hope you enjoy. And if you do, I would love it if you subscribed on Apple or left a review on Apple um, or shared this with someone. Uh, I, I ask you that a lot, but it actually really would help. Um, I mean, I'll be honest with you, it would help, it would help me. It would mean so much to me. <laughs> so yeah, share it up uh, with anyone you think focuses too much on score. Yeah. All right, let's get into it. If you could start by like introducing yourself, name, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I'm really, really happy to be here, Josh. Dr. Scott Barkle. Uh, I am a teaching assistant professor at West Virginia University in sport and exercise psychology. Um, I have been at West Virginia now since 2016, which seems to be a lot longer than just three and a half years. <laughs> um, and before that, I, I worked for about three and a half years with the Army. Nice. I read your bio on West Virginia and... You did your dissertation on something called the effects of an enjoyment-focused applied sports psychology training program, or I guess just to quickly say something along the lines of enjoyment-focused sports psychology. Yes. Could you explain that a little bit? Yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> you so, could probably talk a lot. <laughs> yeah. I've presented this many, many times. So yeah, when I was uh, when I was in my third year of doing my PhD, I was hooked on the idea of like why we enjoy something, right? So we'll, we'll use the example within soccer, which is who I work, work with. You can have an athlete whose primary source of enjoyment can be a variety of things, right? So you can have one person who she likes being on TV right? So she likes kind of being in the press. She likes being on social media. She likes being seen as I am an athlete, which is fine. That's, there isn't anything wrong with that, but that would be the reason why she really, um, she is really invested within soccer. Then you could have an athlete who she really likes the more like um, physical components, right? So she likes to be out there. She likes to be kind of kicking the ball, running, heading the ball. That's her reason she really is invested in this sport. Then you could have an athlete who she's, she's invested in soccer because of um, maybe because of like a, 
all of like the friends that she has, right? So she has all these friends, she has connections. That's why she is investing in her sport. So I was reading all of like the research and there's, there's, a, there's a lot of research on why we like something. And I got to thinking, all right, so can you train someone through using sport and exercise psychology to enjoy it in a, in a specific way? So I use the skills specifically of relaxation, um, self-talk, and goal setting. And the hope was to be able to see them shift from more of like an extrinsic source of enjoyment to more of like an intrinsic source of enjoyment. That was the hope. Um, so I work with the U University of Idaho soccer team. I had a treatment group. I had a control group, which was a, a – lengthy process in itself with all of the approvals um but i was able to show that through using applied sport and exercise psychology we can help athletes enjoy their sport in a in a uh more um a healthier way we'll put that that way because you know Here's, here's the example again. So you, you had those three athletes who I, who I um, highlighted first, right? So say athlete one who the reason she likes what she's into, which in this instance was soccer, is because she likes uh, all of the press, right? So she likes being kind of seen. She likes the swag, right? Like walking around in a sweatshirt. Mm -hmm. Well, what if she gets hurt? So we had this actually happen with one of the people. So what if she gets hurt? So now her reason for playing isn't being fulfilled because if she's hurt, she's on the sidelines or she's at home. She isn't being seen on TV. She's not on social media. She has a higher likelihood of quitting because the reason for her being in soccer, what she really, really likes about soccer, isn't being fulfilled. So the hope would be we could shift why she enjoys um, being invested. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I, was with the, I was with the women's team for um, about 16 weeks. Um, I would work with the coaches as well. Um, and we were actually able to show that a more intrinsic source of enjoyment led to higher athletic performance. So, mm the athletes who reported more intrinsic sources actually had uh, higher point totals. So we use goals and assists. Mm. So um, that sort of research hadn't ever, ever been completed before. I was really, really happy with it. Mm. Um, unfortunately, the role I have here at West Virginia, I'm actually not researching a lot, but I would like to continue that in the future. I, I actually also had a study within Olympic weightlifting and within powerlifting that showed the exact same thing. Wow. Um, I believe the powerlifting article is online some, somewhere as well. Right. So with that, the control group and the treatment group, and you said with the treatment, it would, or maybe for both, you would look at things like self-talk and goal setting. Um, so what, what would you use for the treatment group to train them over that 16 week process? Yeah. Uh, really good question. So in the treatment group, I had eight of the, I believe the team had 
21 athletes and four of them were goalies. So we did not use them because they're off in their own world anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would meet with the athletes once a week and we would develop applied sports psychology training programs specific to each of them. So um, the hope I had was that they would set short-term goals that were focused on healthier sources of enjoyment. So we would also use more effective self-talk and we would use effective relaxation skills both before practice and after practice. And I mean, that was really it. You know, I mean, I would say if I, I believe I met with the girls for 11 straight weeks, I would say weeks one through three were generally the same. So uh, pretty much all of them weren't aware what effect, effective self-talk is, what, what it is to set short-term goals. So we sort of had to lay a bit of framework there. And then after we got through week three, we began to individualize it. So, you know, certain people's um, self-talk is really, really good. Certain people's is not very good, right? So um, we would use um, self-talk logs. We would use journals. I'm, I'm actually a large proponent of post-performance journaling. I actually do that with most, all of my clients. Yeah. So that was, that was sort of the plan. Um, I worked with my advisor as well, who was supervising it and we were very, very happy with the results. We, we weren't necessarily expecting as strong of results as we had. My, my advisor, Dr. Damon Burton at the university of Idaho, he was very, skeptical i'll put it that way about the study but uh at the end we were extremely happy with the results i think i've yeah i've written a couple articles i've presented at at a couple conferences so yeah that's um i can see the skepticism you know even (laughs) in this field it's like okay yes it's it's one thing to let's let's talk about your self-talk let's journal let's let's focus on these relaxation techniques but will it actually translate to improving and you actually showed it did and and that is that would feel really good to actually see that kind of result yeah it was extremely fulfilling um i think in a sport like soccer if 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 you're to compare a sport like soccer or football or like basketball to a sport like golf right i mean we work in a sport where it's slow right so you can hit a shot, then you have maybe what, like six minutes in mm. bef- before you hit the shot afterwards. Sure. So we are lucky enough to help people really get a sense of what is kind of going on from shot to shot. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? How's my heart rate doing? Am I walking fast? Am I walking slowly? So I, I, I really feel in the sport we work in, there's, there's larger room to affect um, change. In a sport like soccer, it's a continuous sport, right? I mean, you could have like a foul or you could have a sub- substitution. But with the exception of maybe like a penalty kick or um, maybe like a corner kick, there's not a lot of time to just stop, relax, figure out what's going on, practice self-awareness, which I really hit hard on. So. I think that's one of the challenges within people in our field working within specific sports that just, they don't have a lot of 
room for reflection when the sport is really, really good going. Right. Yeah. And with golf, it's, they have that time. So you're right. saying it's not just pre and post game, like in soccer and with a trickle in just a sprinkle of it during the game. But with golf, it's like every shot is a, has a pre and post game to it. It's right. uh, you can be self-aware much more throughout golf and and that's that's to the detriment of a lot of players because <laughs> it can really affect you if you're self-aware and thinking the wrong things but like you say that's that's why it's so easy to affect change in golf um right yeah i i, I think that's also why you know sport and exercise psych has been used within golf for 35 years. I mean, it's, it's very widely accepted. I think that's one of, one of the reasons why, you know, sports like football, it hasn't been widely used until maybe 10 years ago. But yeah, I, I believe within golf, sim, similar to sports like tennis, um, sports like diving, there's more room to affect change. Mm-hmm. So you've done a lot of coaching, like um, like actual college golf coaching. Uh, have you learned anything about the psychology of golf through that, and like how to affect players? I mean, you've you've learned it from all kinds of ways, but did you learn anything specifically through that? Yeah. So transitioning to being a coach was a very interesting process. Um, so just a little bit of backstory how that happened. When I went out to the University of Idaho uh, on my visit, um, I was able to meet with the head men's golf coach, uh, who was John Rehorn, um, who is now at Oregon State. And one of the reasons I went to Idaho is because I was going to be able to work with a few of the players on his team. And I was so excited. I'm like, this is awesome. I'm going to get to work within college golf and all this sort of stuff. So um, he unfortunately left. I, well, not unfortunately. for It would be unfortunate for the University of Idaho as he's been doing very, very well at Oregon State. So I started working with a couple of players on the women's team when I was first out there in the fall. Uh, then I was introduced to Coach Lisa Doug Johnson, um, who brought me on as her assistant coach in the spring primarily to work on like psychological side, but, um, you know, I was at all the events. I was at the majority of the practices. Um, you know, you learn a lot from just watching, right? I, uh, I screwed up as a coach a couple of times and Lisa let me know, which is just what happens. You know, you just <laughs> kind of learn how to be an effective coach, what to do and what not to do. You know, I think one of the largest things I learned from coaching that I put in the practice is, you don't have to fix it all at once, right? So I think a lot of people within our field think you have to throw everything at the wall with the client and hope a few things hit, right? Mm -hmm. I think within coaching, you learn this as well. If you're with a player on a hole and you say, all right, we're 150 yards, it's a little bit uphill, a little bit into the wind, you're out of the rough, we gotta think about that you're three under par, you're probably a little bit kind of pumped up. Let's think about that. It's hot out here. Let's think about that. And who you're working or who you are out there coaching says, you know what, coach, that's way too much information. I just want to hit a six iron. Up there. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're like, okay, just hit a six iron. Right. <laughs> I think within consulting that happens as well. 
you know, people try to work on their relaxation and their self-talk and their visualization and their short-term goal setting and their mindfulness all within a session. That's just too much. Mm. So I think my experience coaching at the University of Iowa, University of South Carolina, I, I learned how to be more purposeful in how I work with a client. That is huge. Um, Cause the very like purpose of helping a client is in a lot of ways to, to strip away things that they're thinking about. Cause uh, usually that's the problem that a player is encountering is too much going on in their head and, right. and helping them be self-aware of, okay, let's think about less, not more. And that, that is definitely information for um, when you're actually in a session with a player, let's try to work on less. Let's, let's tackle this one big thing first and then we'll move on to the next one. Right. Yeah. And if, if I can kind of share an example from my work here at West, West Virginia. So right now we have in our program, 15 PhD students. And so our students have the opportunity to work with West Virginia Un University athletic teams. Not all, but we work with about six of them. So typically in year one, all of our students look at me they're like, what do I do? What is consulting? I'm like, well, you have to, we have to get some experience. We have a couple of courses in it. But what I often hear when they first kind of work with a client or with, in this case, West, West Virginia University student, student athlete is, well, I'm not certain what to help them with, right? Like, where do I go? Do I go down visualization? Do I do relaxation? Do I do self-awareness? Like, what do I do? I'm like, don't, don't worry about that right now. We'll just kind of get through it. You'll kind of get it, right? So most of the first years will take a applied sports psychology class in their spring semester. So uh, that was a class which I ran this last spring. So then they have all this info right? They now know all of the things that we should be working on within an applied consulting session. So then they throw it all at the wall at the, at the athletes. Like, I want you to do it all at once. And I'm like, no, 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 we got to go somewhere in between. Right? So I think the process of learning how to be an effective consultant certainly is a process, you know, to use the same word in the sentence twice, but, <laughs> sure. um, I, I think if, if we can be very purposeful in what we hope to get across, that's going to be as effective for who we're working with as possible. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, definitely helped for me. I, I struggle with that for sure. So um, to move on to kind of your personal life in a, in a little bit, you play golf and you just played in your club's member guest this past weekend. Um, First off, how did you guys do? <laughs> we did well. So my brother and I, um, brother's name is Ross. Uh, Ross is a kind of golfer that plays once a year during Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, he played lacrosse in college, and he's always been quite athletic, but never really gotten into the sport. So um, unfortunately, my father wasn't able to come, uh, who I, I've been playing member guests with him for a long time so I invited Ross so uh, right now I'm a one handicap and my brother is a 32 
So we were in the eighth flight, which I'm not used, used to being, being in. Mm-hmm. Um, but he had a lot of fun in his first actual event ever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we won our flight. Oh, wow. Um, and then we got, so my club, the pines does a kind of like a horse race sort of thing where we, uh, this year we had 10 flights. So the flight winners all go on the first hole. We do alternate shot, which is always interesting to see people hand handle the pressure, which I would imagine we're going to dis- discuss in our second. Oh, yeah. Um, so we made it to hole number two in the, in the horse race, which, which for us was a huge win. Yeah. That's awesome. So won your flight. Um, so did you, I mean, we'll just get right into it. Did you see anything he struggled with mentally of his first ever competitive round? And were you like able to help him through it? Like, were you Mr. Sports Psych throughout the entire day? <laughs> so he knows what I do, right? So um, he, I think he's, I'm trying to think of exactly what I said. He said that if, he, if there was anything really, really wrong to let him know. Right? right but he he didn't really want me saying something at all so my whole process for ross and i the whole weekend was just to have a lot of fun zero expectations just have a bunch of fun mm. um and so on the first day we played three matches we won them all and on the second day i could sense him starting to get worried about the result right i'm like all right i'm just gonna let him sit in it for a few holes right? See if he gets over it. See if he gets through it. I didn't want to be that person that just hopped right in. But when we arrived at the Pines on um, day two, he was looking at the board. He was doing all of like the math in his head. How many points do we need? Like, we can't be thinking about that, Ross. It's like, we just have to go out there one match at a time. We can't affect anybody else. All we can affect is us. So the first match of the second day, his first four tee shots probably went a combined eight yards. Mm, right. So I, I could sense that, you know, he's getting way over the top with his swing, which again, he doesn't really golf. So he doesn't know what that means, but he was having a much slower uh, pre-shot routine and he was standing over the ball way too long. So he was like a statue over the ball, hard to make an athletic move. And it was just really bad. So um, I just, after that, I just kind of sat him down like, hey, we're just having fun, right? And we went through this um, process of rationalization, I would say, right? I was like, all right, Russ, you flew in here. We had zero expectations, right? He's like, yeah. I'm like, all right. So at the beginning of the week, if we would have said, all right, we're through the first three or five matches and we're crushing everybody, would you have been happy? Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, I would have been thrilled. And I looked at him like, are you happy right now? He's like, no, golf sucks. It's <laughs> like, all right, so there's, there's a bit of an issue here, right? So um, after that, I actually made a great three for two. But he needed to get a sense of the reality he is currently in, right? So he is not a golfer. He hasn't played in an event before. He was feeling all of these senses of anxiety, senses of nerves. He now had a sense of expectation because all we heard from friends the evening before and that morning was, oh, you guys are running away with the flight. We'll see you in the shootout. Mm -hmm. All these sorts of things, which he had never heard before within golf. So we had to kind of pull back the reins 
and, and help him realize one, he's not a golfer. So zero sense of expectation on him and just to have, have fun. And, and he played significantly better the last 14 holes of the day. Mm. So is that, is that something you see with most players? I know you, you, you work with a select few now, but is it, is that a, like a, I know it's like hard to compare, um, you know, kind of beginner golfers to really highly skilled golfers, but is that still something you see with players? And is that how you usually help them is like, let's, let's look at it logically and take the emotions out of it. Yeah, I would say that one of the things I really, I really believe in is that you as an athlete can set out what success is, right? So say you and I uh, went out for a round of golf and you are a very successful golfer and you shoot 63. That's a good round for you. Say mm -hmm. I shoot 64. So you beat me, but still, I should be happy that I shot 64 and not worry that you shot 63 because I can't do anything about you, right? Mm -hmm. So what I do with the majority of athletes at the beginning of the season is like, all right, what would a successful season look like, right? Is it winning an event? Is it being in the top 15 of the rankings? Is it getting the regionals? Is it getting a division one ride? Like, what is success? write all this down, of course. And then at the end of the season, we sit down and be like, all right, you set out success at the beginning of the year as having a scoring average lower than 74. Well, you're the scoring average lower than 74. Like, yeah. I'm like, have you really processed what that means? Right? Because a lot of times people only think about what went wrong, not what went well. So I also have athletes do this from event to event, right? It's like, what would success look like? hitting a certain amount of fairways, having a certain amount of putts, having a certain result. Because I think that for a lot of people within golf specifically, it's, it's easy to reflect on what went wrong. So like that last hole, I had a bogey. That's the only thing I'm going to think about the rest of the day. Then when I go out to eat, I'm just going to be focused on that bogey. I'm going to, it's going to affect how I relax, affect how I sleep. Because they aren't thinking about all of the birdies they made that day, right? It's just that last hole was a bogey. So I think this is especially true within junior golfers. It's hard for them to reflect effectively on the success that, that he or she set out. Hmm. So that's, that's really something I, I, I try to work with all of the athletes on. Yeah, is um, setting expectations and then getting to the end of the season and – you know, essentially shooting that 64, meaning accomplishing all your goals or some of your goals right. and accomplishing any goals is good. But if you didn't accomplish this one that you wanted to, yet you accomplished these other three, these, these players say, ah, but I, I wanted to do that. And right. you say, no, I mean, look, look what you did do and how right. good that is. Now let's set goals for this coming season and let's start fresh. Uh, right. And that's, that so is a huge part. Yeah, so just, just to think of one, one example within a junior athlete from last year. So he had the goal of he wanted to get a Division I scholarship, and we were aiming schools typically ranked about 100 to 200 or so, right? So we, at the, at the start of the year, and we had been working together for a, for a while, but at the start of the season, he was like, all right, 
what I want to set up for success for this year is I would like to get a division one offer. I'm like, all right, that's, that's, that's awesome. So he had a pretty successful spring, very successful summer. He ended up getting a roughly a 70% offer to a top 60 university. Oh, wow. Nice. Which was, which was awesome. I was very happy for him. Mm. So I was actually with him when he received the phone call of the, of the, of the offer, which is always a very unique experience because <laughs> his first reaction was, well, it's not a full. Right. I'm like, I won't say who it is, but it's like, look, we had the goal of any sort of offer from a school ranked hundred to 200. You've now gotten roughly a 70% offer from a top 60 university. Hmm. This is awesome. Hmm. Right. And, it was just that his first reaction was, well, I wanted more. Whereas in reality, it's like what we have is, is it should be considered like a win, mm. right? So I think people do this within, within events. People do this within their lives, within school. And I think just having a realistic understanding of what success is and then once success happens, being able to effectively reflect and process that success is extremely important. Mm. That is a, that is a great word for people to hear um, who have big goals or who, who even have uh, modest goals. Uh, that is um, just being able to look at it with clear eyes and, and kind of go about the process of making it happen and then seeing it, measuring it, and analyzing how you did and then moving forward. Uh, that's, right. that's helpful to anybody. So um, as we kind of wrap up, do you, and, and not that what you've, ha- what you've already said has not been practical, but do you have like one kind of final practical thing that maybe most golfers need to hear that that could help? Uh, I know that's really broad and every player is different, <laughs> but um, just like one thing on the top of your head that like if I could sit down and tell any player this one thing, this is what I would tell them uh, regarding the mental game. Yeah, super broad, but that's, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. I would say within the sport of golf, you know, everyone talks about the pre-shot routine. Um, I work with my clients on separating between a pre-swing routine and a pre-shot routine. So um, we like to work on that. Your pre Shot routine is preparing yourself psychologically to, to effectively hit whatever shot it is. So what's the wind doing? What's the slope doing? All that sort of stuff related to the shot. So once your pre-shot routine is over, you should have 100% confidence in what should I be hitting, right? Is it going to be like a high hook, a low fade? Is it like a six-foot putt? Whatever the shot is, you should be able to step up to the ball and you don't have to think about what am I going to do? So then we kind of slide into the pre swing routine. And this is where we separate the psychological from the physical. So what's my heart rate doing? How are my hands feeling? How are my legs feeling? Right? So how long should I be looking at the ball? How long should I be standing over the ball for? And then we have to, have ourselves be 100% physically ready to, to hit, this, hit whatever we're going to hit. So I think that in the world of golf, people often talk about the pre-shot routine. I know um, the Vision 54 ladies over in Sweden, 
they discuss this as well, that we have a pre-swing and a pre-shot. But I would say that if you do not have a pre-shot routine, you have to get one that works. I'm sure the majority of golfers out there think they have one that works, but it's not the same exact thing every single time. Um, and just if, if you're someone that struggles with thinking about the shot once you're over the ball, um, trying to separate a pre-swing routine versus a pre-shot routine, I think would be very helpful. Yeah, and and the Vision 54 is a like think box play box, right? Where right. back in the think yeah. box you're doing the analysis and and then once you step up into this into the uh play box, it's all right, let's move on from you know, let's get out of our own heads and allow ourselves to just swing, right? Yes, I think that the play box again i i've i've spoken to them once or twice and so i'm certainly not any kind of uh vision 54 x oh, <laughs> yeah i think that they're when they step into the play box they're trying to eliminate all of the thought and just be present mm. whereas the training i like to do with athletes is if there's something wrong with the machine right so my heart rate's too high I'm really, really thirsty, right? There's something wrong with the machine. We have to take purposeful action to fix whatever that thing is. So slowing down my heart rate, slowing down my hands, shaking. I'm um, walking too slow, walking too fast. And in the pre-swing routine, that would be where we handle any of those physiological concerns. Right, yes. Like tie up all of these bows and... And then what, what will result will be a good shot because you, you kind of checked all these boxes and made sure right. that you were physically ready to even hit this shot. Right. Nice. Right. Yeah. I, I guess one last example, and again, this, this could be certainly helpful to you or anybody that mainly works with junior golfers, they really seem to like this, this example, this, um, this analogy. So when I'm working with an athlete and something's going wrong, I like to use the example of like we have a cold, right? So if, if we are sick, and I guess this is, this is an interesting example given our current health, health, <laughs> sure. health environment, but if, if we have a cold, we often deal with the symptoms, right? We deal with, I have a headache, I have a runny nose, I'm sneezing, I'm really tired. So we handle the symptoms because that's what we can see. We often don't think about, all right, what is the actual cold? Do I have like a viral infection? Do I have a bacterial infection? Do I have the flu? Like what's the actual crux of what's going on? We just mm -hmm. handle all the symptoms on the outside. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes if we handle the symptoms, we can more effectively see what the cold is. The same thing happens in sports. So if I'm on the free throw line or I'm a field goal kicker, I've, I've actually worked with a couple of field goal kickers, that they're sweating or their hands are shaking, or they want to go to the bathroom, or their like, vision becomes very, very specific. That is a symptom of something going wrong, which is a little bit larger. It could be like a lack of confidence. It could be only focusing on the score, focusing on the outcome, not a lot of self-esteem, right? So when you're working with an athlete for a while, it's important to understand the symptoms, but it's also to help them understand what is the more long-term cold that we also have to we also have to fix 
I see. Yeah. Uh, getting to the root of it and right. And using the symptoms as um, like, okay, it's because you're sweating or because your heart rate's going crazy or because you're, you self-report that you're thinking about score, we can kind of surmise that it's probably this. It's probably this is the right. root cause and let's attack that uh, in, right. our, in our mental game practices. Yeah, and lots of athletes don't like to do that. You know, oftentimes if they, they have just a overall lack of confidence, lack of motivation, that's a harder thing to, to really work on as compared to my heart rate is too high, hmm. right? So um, I think when we in this field do really, really productive long-term work, it's fixing the cold while also fixing the symptoms. Right. Yeah, that's, uh, that's awesome advice to both players to kind of work on their own games and to uh, sports psychologists, mental coaches, to how to best help a player or to college golf coaches or, or whoever it is. Um, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, Scott, I appreciate it. I don't, I don't want to take any more of your time. Um, this has been great. I, I appreciate your information. Yeah, Josh, this has been, this has been really, really fun. Um, as you can see, we probably could have gone on for many, <laughs> many more of hours. Of course, but, yeah, yes. Um, I really appreciate you having me here. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Scott. And uh, you got anything else fun playing today or you got all just work? Today is a work day. Uh, a bunch of calls. I may shoot up to the pines with my wife for a quick range session. Oh, nice. uh, we have our club championship next weekend which i hope Ooh. to compete well in I, I would not consider myself one of the betting favorites at all <laughs> but uh yeah sure. that's about it what about you i uh yeah i've got the session with a player we're gonna actually walk nine um for the session so nice uh it's it's a little hot down here i mean i'm sure it's hot up there too but um not just, as hot as it is there <laughs> just gonna <laughs> focus on staying hydrated and uh finding my golf ball each time <laughs> wonderful those are great um short-term goals that's right <laughs> well scott i uh, thank you very much man all right josh thanks bye all right bye all right everybody episode is over if you liked this share this with somebody Someone needs to hear this information. I know it. You know it. I know you know it. You know that I know you know it. <laughs> Share this up, uh, and you're going to love next week's episode. It's with the mental performance coach for the San Francisco Giants Greater Baseball Organization. Uh, he has some awesome insights, uh, and you're not going to want to miss that. So stay on the lookout. I'll be dropping that. Uh, probably next week. All right. Thanks for listening. Catch you guys next time.